I said we'd be back, and we're back. Welcome to episode 120 of the Life in Red podcast. It's lifeinredpodcast.com, Life in Red podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and Life in Red pod on Twitter. My guest today is one of those people, and I referenced this in the episode, just when you see all the things that they do and all the things that they're involved with and how talented they are, it just it makes you want to match that energy and just, you know, it not only inspires you, but motivates you to just be like, wow, I want to work as just as hard as them. I want to be, you know, make a difference as much as they do. And that's exactly what my guest does. uh, For me, at least, I know for so many, a complete inspiration for all the things that they do. Um, We talk about mental health. It's a mental health episode. We talk about her journey. Uh, We talk about her being, you know, a high performing athlete and what mental illness did to that, her career and how she, you know, fought through, got treatment supports and uh, continued at a high level. And not only uh, a very talented athlete uh, at basketball, but also an author and an outstanding writer. And we talk about her new book. Uh, it's called The Sifting Project. It's available everywhere now check it out the sifting project and the really cool thing about this is of course she writes a lot about her journey and about mental health and and other educational pieces but this is this is completely fiction this is a a story that she developed i i'm so fascinated by that how people can just create an entire world in their head and put it to paper in a captivating and entertaining way that really makes you feel. So um, very happy to uh, have finally got a chance to talk with her and uh, meet her a little bit. I know it's not in person, it's virtual, but it still counts, right? Um, like I said, she has the Sifting Project. It's out now. She's a part of Unsinkable Youth along with me as uh, on Unsinkable. She's a former Stanford basketball player and soon to be who knows uh basketball player so please give it up for my cat my guest Michaela Brewer you take the red pill you stay in wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes Michaela fellow Unsinkable champion. It's been a while since I've talked to my my fellow friends from Unsinkable. So thank you so much for joining me. And it's great to finally kind of like meet you. We've like met sort of, not really, never in person, obviously, but uh, to actually get a chance to like get to know you more and, and sit down, it's, uh, it's a treat for me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Likewise. Um, you are one of those people that I see on the internet uh, posting about all the amazing things you're doing. And I'm just like, damn, okay, I got to do more. Like, I got to, like, up my game. Like, you're just one of those people that just leaves me in awe because, you know, you just do so much. You're so talented. You have, like, this, like, wonderful list of activities you're involved in. Um, like, I don't know. I, just to start, like, just, like, you're cool, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start with the book, though. Usually I would get into a little bit about you, and we will, but I'm going to start with the book uh, because I find it super cool. Uh, it's called The Sifting Project. It's out now. Yes. 
I mean, I know you've answered this question probably numerous amount of times because it's one of those things that interviewers like to ask. Give us a little brief synopsis of what this book's about, because one of the cool things is not only are you a writer and people write articles and things, but you wrote nonfiction, which I find even more cool because that's hard. You just created something in your mind and put it to paper. So what is this book about? Yeah, so it is set in the like period between the 40s and the, well, more like the 30s, but 30s and 70s. Uh, So it spans a long period of time and it's about kind of intergenerational story sharing um, and how our memories are passed on um, and stories are passed on. But it starts with these two guys, um, they're kids and they kind of grow up around World War II, um, the end of World War II. Um, and they're kind of coming into their own around that time. And they've lost a lot, um, lost a lot of very important people in their lives. And they're very motivated to kind of research where, what happens to people's souls and memories and all of these things that we gather throughout our lives. What happens to that when we die? And so they end up working for NASA and kind of getting into astrophysics and neuroscience and all of these things, desperately trying to find this answer. Um, and the whole kind of premise of the book is they find an answer and that answer gets into the wrong hands and they have to decide kind of how they're going to navigate that and whose hands, if anyone's, that that information should be in. One of those good moral questions, you know, when you have that powerful powerful answer to something or that information and like, yeah, like, is it good or evil? Who's going to have hold of that? What I'm curious about, because you have a very extensive background in a lot of different things. You went to Stanford for basketball, which we will also talk about because that's super cool. Uh, Play for team Canada. Um, You know, that's again, all that stuff, but where did this, this particular idea, like you, you basically created a world. And that's one of the things I find so fascinating about people like you who can write nonfiction, like, right. You think of, you build this entire scenario and worlds basically from your mind and, and then describe it to people and let them imagine it. So where did this idea of this story, like, how did that come to be? Yeah. Um, well, the title, interestingly, I'm going to give like full credit to my mom here. She <laughs> came up with the actual title, The Sifting Project. Um, and she just said kind of one day, like, oh, it'd be really interesting if you could sift through people's like memories or stories or experiences. And like if there was some kind of catalog of it. And so uh, that kind of started turning in my head. Um And I also started thinking about memory. And one of the things that I've struggled with a lot um, having depression is memory loss. And that kind of whole idea of being able to go back to memories that we've had or go back to other people's memories or kind of explore that was really like inviting and intriguing for me Um, because it's something honestly that I'm afraid of, of not being able to remember things um, and not being able to um, go back into those stories of my life experiences. Mm. And so that's kind of what started the ball rolling there. And then I just kind of brought in a whole bunch of other personal experiences and, uh, some of my studies in human biology, um, studies in creative writing and just kind of smacked it all together into a, into a story. But yeah. Right. Um, that's interesting about the memory. Cause 
in of itself, basically, when we think of someone's memories, it's, I guess, like what you were saying, it's kind of either or like oral stories, or it's writing, right? Like we have biographies, or we have uh, how historians basically decipher what has happened is through people's accounts of the events and historical artifacts. But I'm curious about the mental health aspect of it, because obviously that's how we connected. For those who don't know, Unsinkful is a mental health organization that we're both a part of. And memory is something that I've started to struggle with very recently. Now, my long-term memory is, is quite good, but my short-term memory is like all of a sudden going. And yeah. like, I'll, I'll like, I'll take my meds and literally like brush my teeth and like two seconds later, I'm like, did I take them? Now I can't remember. You, so like, is, is that how you also experience these or is it like you, the opposite? Are you more concerned about remembering long-term events? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for, for me, it's been a little bit of both. Um, I've forgotten things that I thought I would always kind of be able to access um, at the time and they're harder to get to, I guess, um, through that like association pathway that happens in your brain when you think of something, um, but also, and maybe more so short term. Um, and like, I will forget things mid sentence and just kind of lose my mm. train of thought. Um, and that's very prominent and that happens to me a lot. Um, and it makes things really, really hard. And I think it's just because there's so much else that's going on in my mind. Um, also with, um, OCD. So I've diagnosed depression and OCD. And so my thoughts are all over the place at all times of the day. Um, so it's just a bit of a crowd in there. And I think that's definitely a contributor. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I guess that was a very long winded answer <laughs> to your question, but, um, both. Yeah. Yeah. Does writing help you articulate these things? So, you know, you were mentioning your brain's crowded, right? And we've had people, on this podcast talk about OCD, um, specifically more pure OCD and the obsessive yeah. thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's what you struggle with, but does writing, does that like that, is that like your release to like, kind of like narrow that all the noise and then like put it into this one place where you can kind of like sift right through it. You know what I mean? And like organize those thoughts properly. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's also what helps me uh, with clarity. Like I will have a lot of connected ideas, especially if I'm working on a particular like essay or something of the sort, even a story. Um, a lot of the ideas I have are not connected. I know they're connected, but I can't connect them without writing them down um, and like really fleshing things out on paper. Um, I think I'm good at like collecting all of those things in my brain, but they're not organized or clear at all until I can actually write them and organize them. Um, so yeah, yeah. Writing helps a lot with that. I've, I've heard this. I can't remember if it was specifically with OCD or if it was ADHD, but it was, you're mentioning these connected thoughts. And I, I wish I could remember who I was talking to about this, but it was like, while the ideas are not connected, it totally makes sense in your brain, but like you can't articulate how they're connected like yeah. orally to other people. Like if I were to ask you, well, like, how does that make sense? Like, and like, it's like in your mind, it just, it just makes sense. Like, is that kind of what is like going on? Yes. That's a really good way to put it. Um, trying to 
explain what makes sense to me is very hard. <laughs> yeah. And here I am asking all these questions. Well, like, tell me how it works. you know, um, <laughs> it's one thing to write an essay or, you know, an article about your personal experience, but how did, like, is there something about writing a story that isn't maybe incorporates these ideas of your life, but it's about somebody else? Like, is there something about that that helps in terms of these ideas, right? Like, I don't know if it's like, because you don't have a, like when you're writing it, you can write it maybe more authentically because it's not necessarily, it's about you, but not about you type thing. Um, is it like the nonfiction part of that? Or is it more so that just something like you just, you love telling a new, like a story uh, that, you know what I mean? Or maybe it's a bit of both. Yeah, I think it's definitely a bit of both. Uh, I mean, I love like creating, like creating characters and worlds and scenes and dialogue, I think is my favorite um, to, yeah, just create those connections and conversations between characters. But I also think writing a story like allows you to go a place that like writing a memoir or an essay or your personal story um, can't go um, because it allows you to pull up things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily say um, or aren't ready to share yet Mm. with the world. And you can put it into those characters and let those characters hold it for you um, and let it shape who those characters are. So I think even though the novel's not like the experiences aren't directly related to me or what I've been through, I think a lot of the ways that they feel about it and the way that they like emotionally go through things in the story um, is very much a piece of me because um, looking back, like, I had to pull that from somewhere. Um, So yes. Yeah. That's um, it's something I've talked about a lot on this and with a lot of people uh, and it's the idea of art and especially how it applies to mental health. So whether it's writing, whether it's music uh, you could do film and movies. Uh, I also incorporate my podcast in there, but although it's not fiction, this, especially with fiction though, and this is, when I started reading up on the things you're doing, it it opened my mind to a lot more. And you could make this argument for movies too, because it's fiction, that you can explore ideas a lot deeper and maybe more experimentally because it's, you know, it's not tied to you or your care, like your reputation or character, right? Like it, it sort of the idea of like, you could, make a character super evil and do horrible things, but really explore what that means. So I take something like Breaking Bad where the guy's evil, but you're also kind of rooting for him in a way. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting and in how you can maybe explore mental health with this or like mental illness specifically, right? Because it's one thing to, to maybe talk about what you're thinking about, but sometimes maybe what you're thinking about might be a little dark or it might be a little like not ready for public consumption in ways, but you could take it through a character. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's a, it's a really unique way to kind of explore that like morally gray kind of area um, and push back against a lot of the binaries that we like to put people in, especially people who, have had mental health struggles in their life and have ended up in very troubling places because of it. Um, whether 
you know, that's really, really dark or not. Um, I think we put people in boxes. And so I think fiction definitely allows you to peel back some of those layers mm -hmm. and be like, okay, this is a fictional character, but like, let's explore this scenario. Um, and show a lot of the sides of this persona um, that we don't see in real life or that we don't take time to see in real life when something happens to somebody or somebody quote goes down the wrong path kind of a thing right so yeah, yeah. yeah. the way I described you is absolutely accurate and you do all these amazing things and you're talented and you know all the things you described and as we're breaking down the stigma of mental health, most people who might not be in the mental health community or really understand it would see someone like you who excels, is successful, has all these accolades and be like, she struggles. She's had struggles with mental illness. You know, it's the common misconception, right? Um, yeah. When did it really start for you? Where's I always tell people like it started when I was like 12 and then like it slowly incrementally all these signs that I were missing got worse and worse until I kind of reached a crisis point. Where did it start for you and how did it develop as you got older and, you know, started experiencing more of life? Yeah. I think for me, the, the OCD part of things at least started when I was very young, um, which is not uncommon. Um, I had symptoms at a very, very young age. I remember doing things and being um, like terrified of not doing certain things when I was like six years old in kindergarten. Um, and I remember that kind of being pretty stagnant through my um, youth and then into my teenage years. It's, sorry, I'm not trying to cut you off, but if you don't mind, like sort of what, what do you mean by uh, like you were afraid to not do something? Yeah. So I, the biggest kind of thing um, around OCD is like the fear of not doing the obsessions and the compulsions, like the feared okay. consequence associated okay. with it. Um, and that's what kind of creates it in your mind and why you are like having that compulsion um, and those obsessive thoughts and why you need to carry them out because there's a feared consequence. Mm. And so those feared consequences kind of changed as I got older, um, just, you know, based on my circumstances and what was going on in my life. Um, and the one thing that was an escape for me, I think was basketball. And for some reason um, I was, somewhat more free of those obsessions and compulsions when I was playing. Um, so basketball is very much an escape for me, um, especially in high school when things start to pick up the pace that was around the time I was um, playing on all these different teams, trying to be recruited um, for university, very, very busy time. And basketball was an escape. Um, the depression side of things, I think started in my teens um, for a number of reasons, but that really, um, got strong towards the end of high school and into my first year of college, because I think I very much thought naively <laughs> that I could run from some of the things that I was feeling and experiencing as a teenager. And 
getting to Stanford, I was like, okay, I'm a freshman and I'm going to start off brand new and try and like clean slate, but mental illness doesn't work that way. It will follow you. Um, and so everything followed me and it got worse because I was alone. And I think the pressures and the standards were higher, um, competing at Stanford, um, and academically too. (laughs) So everything kind of all together was like compounding itself. And I hit a breaking point, um, in February, 2017. So that would have been winter of my freshman year. Um, and I attempted suicide and spent a lot of time in the hospital, um, going through intensive therapy and trying to figure things out. But kind of like you said, I had all of those thoughts like, oh, I've got all these things given to me, um, or not maybe given to me, but like going for me. Um, and I've reached all these goals and have everything I've ever wanted. Um, like I felt guilty about feeling the way that I was. Um, and I mean, could get into the whole mental toughness, performance pressure thing associated with being an athlete, um, and how that makes everything worse as well. But, um, yeah, it was a very, very tough period of my life. And I think now it's, um, a lot of those things aren't gone. I've just learned to live alongside them, I guess and have better coping coping mechanisms now but yeah right you went from you know this love of basketball that was your escape that freed you from all the you know not only the compulsions as you said but the I mean just the general pressures of being a teenager and and yeah hormones puberty and high school in itself is not always a great place And then your escape turned into, I mean, this opportunity, but also this pressure that, you know, like Stanford is like, that's Ivy League if I'm, you know, I'm not brushed up on my my Ivy League schools, but like, I mean, that's pretty prestigious. You're playing at the highest level you can possibly play at, a Div 1 athlete. Uh, And, you know, Stanford is, it's not some, you know, not to like downplay other programs, but like final four. And I believe they just won the national championship. So like top of the line school as well. When I, when I look back, so when I started my mental illness journey, it was like 2012. And from the point I graduated high school in 2010 to now 11 years, I've definitely seen the stigma truly start to, to change. But so in your timeline of, 2017 as a freshman were you recognizing what you just told me now that the like you know the pressures of school being away also dealing with depression and and your your OCD were you recognizing the signs along the way or were you so ingrained of trying to run away and in this new lifestyle of just I mean you probably like practice school you know all the different things you have to do like, was it like you were totally kind of like didn't even realize till you reached that that hard point? I, I definitely knew um, mm-hmm. and I definitely saw the warning signs um, and very vividly remember 
choosing not to pay attention to them because I think I thought I needed to bury it. Um, I think I very much felt like I wasn't supposed to feel that way. Like I had no business feeling that way. Um, and I also don't think at the time I had the language to talk about what I was feeling. Um, so I, it was very complicated, but I did see it and I did notice it and I did notice it getting worse. Um, especially with basketball, because I got to a point where it wasn't an escape and depression and OCD were kind of seeping into my performance and my like actual ability to compete. And I really, really struggled um, to do the things that I once had like no problem doing. Um, and it was just all kind of building on top of itself. And then I hit that crisis point. And I also think I thought like, oh, therapy or getting treatment or help of any kind meant that like I needed to be hospitalized. And I ended up being hospitalized, but, um, I think that's a common misconception that we have that we need to be in crisis to have help to mm -hmm. seek help. Um, and it's not true at all. It's actually the exact opposite. Um, you should be seeking help whenever you feel like you need it. So I didn't know that at the time. Um, I think I know I was on a downward spiral, but I didn't know what help looked like, how to ask for it, what the language was to talk mm -hmm. about what I was feeling. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that was necessarily my fault either. I think that's a, um, a piece of being a high level athlete. And I think that's changing now, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm trying to help change it. Some mm -hmm. of the work that I'm doing, um, but also just a cultural thing too. Like you bury it and you don't talk about it and you smile and you go about your day and hope that nobody notices. Yeah. I mean, even as like mental health advocates um, and speakers, we do all this stuff. Like I still carry some stigma with me. Um, yeah. Not so much in my personal life. I'm very free, but if I think about the workplace, that's one place I know still carries a lot. Um, yeah. But, you know, speaking to being an athlete and a, a high level athlete, I mean, just look at this summer when, you know, you had uh, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka come out and, and talk about their struggles and pulling out of big tournaments or the Olympics. And you had a lot of support, which was nice, but you also had a lot of people who really gave them a hard time through the media on social media about yeah. their struggles. And, you know, I would think to somebody like you, who's maybe thinking, you know, I don't know where you were at in your career, but like thinking maybe they're at like the next level, maybe there's the NWA, maybe there's national team, you know, but then, and then you might, or, you know, see something like this and you're like, and maybe you're struggling. Like, oh, maybe I can't, you know, even now, even of all the stuff we know, it's still super hard as a high level athlete to come out and talk about things um, because there's still so much hate and stigma. And especially if you make money, there's still so much of it. There absolutely is. And I think, I mean, there's a lot to unpack, I think, with what you were just saying. Um, one of which is like, there's this expectation um, as an athlete, especially a professional athlete like Simone or Naomi, that you need, like your job is to perform for everyone else, which is not true. Um, 
and then there's also this piece of like feeling like there's going to be some kind of a lack of trust with the coaches. Um, and I remember a coach, I won't say who, um, used to tell our team, like, if you're not on the floor, it means like, if you're not getting game time, if you're one of the people who's on the bench, um, it means that I don't trust you. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, at least that was internalized as like, well, I've, been through hell and back with some of these mental health battles. Um, I must be super untrustworthy mm. and that's not, that's why I'm not playing. And I think I very much thought at many points in time, basketball wise, that my career was over and not worth finishing because mm. um, I believe that I wasn't capable anymore. And I think that, is very true of many athletes. Like they think, okay, if I really take a step away and work through some of the things that I'm feeling and sit with them, um, and really, really feel them and maybe go through therapy and do whatever I need to do. Um, then am I going to be changed? Am I going to be capable still of doing what I was before? Um, and it's a very real thought process. And then I think there's that gets filtered into like the fear of what coaches are going to think and what teammates are going to think. And are they going to think I'm not capable anymore? And they're going to think that I'm not trustworthy anymore. Um, and it's, yeah, it's very complicated, but it is really inspiring and hope inducing to see more athletes, especially athletes with big platforms, mm -hmm. um, talking about, uh, and openly what they've been going through and experiencing mental health wise. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's just even more so of just speaking out. It's that, you know, I think about, I, I, I mean, a hockey player and I think of hockey and we've had some men come forward, which is great, especially with, you know, masculinity and, and, and all those things. Right. I think of Robin Leonard, I think of um, other people like that, but, you know, when I think of particularly of women and women athletes, uh, and especially when I look at social media, so for, for what Simone and Naomi specifically did and, and other women before them, and, you know, women get such a, a hard, like just a horrendously evil time on social media with the comments they get on the best of days. They can be performing at a gold level status, flawless routines, perfect matches, and you'll still be getting, you know, shit on social media. So to come forward with your struggles as a woman who's already trying to fight for your, I guess, sometimes legitimacy in some people's eyes to also come forward with your struggles, like it's inspiring, but it's also you, you, you see all the celebration, which is great, but like, it's still so hard to even have those conversations because so many men in particular don't even take it seriously. And it's, it can be so disheartening, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You said it well. <laughs> <laughs> um, what sorts of things did you go through to work on getting, you know, the help you needed? So you went through the hospital and then sort of as you transitioned out of that intensive route into a more, you know, maintenance and, and, and outside outpatient type stuff. Like what were you doing to help 
get you back to a spot where you could finish your basketball career, which was great, and then get to a point where you are now? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I stayed in therapy for a long time. Um, and I was in therapy uh, once or twice a week, all the way through the rest of my uh, time at Stanford. Um, and that really helped me in ways that like, I don't have words for. Um, and I think, I mean, I also want to give a lot of credit to my teammates being incredibly supportive um, and just being very vocal about how much I could trust them and lean mm -hmm. on them. And I mean, there was definitely times in practice where something would happen. I would make silly mistakes that I wouldn't normally make because um, I couldn't couldn't focus or just, it was an off day and I was struggling. I never once did they get frustrated or angry or anything with me. So huge shout out to them for that. So I have very good people around me and I'm very, very fortunate and grateful for that. Um, and I also think I kind of fell in love with writing again. Mm. Um, and the, I guess, summer slash fall after I got out of the hospital. So it was, it was like maybe six months later. Um, was around the time I had to decide what I was going to major and and minor in. And I knew I wanted to do human biology. Um, but I don't think I ever would have gone the creative writing route as well. Um, so I ended up majoring in human biology and minoring in creative writing, which definitely wouldn't have happened had I have gone through, hadn't I've gone through that mental health kind of downward spiral because I didn't have basketball um, when that was all happening. Uh, but I did have writing and I filled many, many journals and realized like writing is something that I need to kind of return to. And so kind of started on that path and continued kind of doing both um, the science side of things and writing side of things. And I think writing in so many ways has saved me over and over and over again, helping me like learn how to write through my thoughts, um, whether it's creatively or otherwise. Mm. Um, so that's something I continue to do now, um, whether it's writing for an audience or just writing for myself. Um, and I have, again, wonderful people in my life who um, I can share that with and talk through that with. Um, yeah. How often would you say like you write a day? Like how are you spending like eight to 12 hours? Like, are you just constantly writing like every single day? <laughs> I don't know about eight to 12 hours, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, it's a lot. I mean, adding up kind of what I do personally with what I do work-wise. Um, I don't know. It's probably up around four hours a day. Um of writing depends on the day depends on what I'm writing about too mm, true yeah. um where did the advocacy piece come in because that's always what I'm really fascinated about obviously that's a big part of my world and I think about my own journey of going from you know a suicide attempt to all of a sudden talking about it and then talking to other advocates and and all this stuff you know what was that point for you where it turned from not only that you went through all this and you struggled, but then it turned into 
publicly helping other people. Yeah. I think I, I mean, it was definitely the moment where I realized that I wasn't alone Mm. and there was an event at Stanford that was brand new. It had only been going for maybe a year. Um, and it was called game faces and it was put on by student athletes. Um, and there were six speakers selected, um, to share a mental health, um, story or their journey. And I remember going to see it, um, the end of my freshman year, I had just gotten out of intensive therapy and my team had heard about it and they all came with me. And I remember like sitting there and watching these other athletes talk about many of the things that I had felt. And I'm sure many of the audience members had felt as well. Um, audience being mostly other athletes at Stanford. And I think I just realized like the more this gets spoken about the better. And I kind of knew at that point I was funneling myself into into writing and writing being a really good medium for sharing what I was feeling and writing through what I was feeling. Um, and it kind of just started, I think that way. And the first time I wrote my story was for a Stanford newspaper, um, that following fall. And that was the first time I'd ever tried to like formalize, I guess, into a, an essay, I guess you could call it. Um, some of the things that I'd felt and been through. And the feedback from that, like I I don't have words for it. Mm-hmm. Like the response that I got from the other athletes, coaches, um, athletes that I hadn't spoken to in years, like just the, the people saying like either me too, or um, just like, being able to talk with people about these things and having those conversations, um, I think very much fuels me and continues to fuel me. And I, I say this a lot, but like I leave all my tabs open on my computer just so I can see everything that I'm working on and writing and doing every day. Um, because it, it keeps me going. Like it's Mm -hmm. a reason to keep going. Um, because it almost feels like, I don't know, duty is the right word, but like, I don't know, like I have to do it. Like I have an obligation to do it. And that in those very, very dark moments that I still have, um, I feel like I need to stay because I, I can do this and I have the ability to write, um, in the way that I do. Um, so that was kind of very Mm -hmm. long answer, but that's, yeah. Never apologize for a long answer on a podcast. That's why I love podcasts. (laughs) You could talk for 45 minutes and I would just sit here captivated and listening. Um, It's such a bad experience because I had something very similar to, but my first time was on social media. It's It's a great feeling, but it's a strange feeling. And I, because you have so many people reaching out to you, one, and it's a very, you know, embracing and supportive environment. But in the same thought, it's like, wow, all these other people struggle too and have to like think similar things. Like it's great, yeah. but it's also kind of like, it's like, I, I call it morbid. I find it like that whole, like, you're not alone thing is it's like, it's nice to know I'm not alone, but it's also a morbid thought that like, we're all really struggling 
in, a, in, in one way or another in our own certain ways, right? Like it's, we're, we might, we're all in this together, but we're in a, what is it? We're in a, the same storm, but we're in different boats type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's strange. I don't know if you experience the same thing. Like it's lovely, but it's strange. Yeah, it, it is strange. <laughs> um, and I, it's strange for a number of reasons. Cause I think once you're in that like advocate position um and people see you as that it is a wonderful thing because yes Mm -hmm. you do hear from a lot of people and get to connect with people about something that's extremely deep and vulnerable um but then there's also a bit of an expectation like okay you're advocating now so you must be on the other side of the bridge and Mm. it's that's not necessarily true um actually i think in most cases it's not true i don't think there really is another side of the bridge Mm -hmm. um but yeah like it's a bit of a paradox like you're not alone but no two stories are ever the same either and to tell your story like authentically you really have to dig into those wounds again and open them in a lot of ways. Um, so like those connections are incredible, but they also require a lot of you. And I think that's important to recognize, mm-hmm. especially with people who are in that like advocate role or who are seen as advocates and who do share maybe more often. Um, so yeah, it is weird. Weird is a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, two two things I want to pick up on on that because you brought two really good points. Uh, we'll start with the second one is that, oh yeah, a lot of people, it requires a lot. Now, in a way, me publicly discussing it and putting it out in the open, for me, I know it's not the same for everybody, but it it's therapeutic for me because it just like, it's like gets it right off my chest. So I don't mind being vulnerable. I've had to get, smarter and and more thoughtful about what I'm putting out in particular. Like I don't, you know, so I'm not compromising different parts of my life, but it's very freeing. But at the same time, you know, even this conversation, uh, I'm sure afterwards you'll like have to sit back and just recalibrate because it does, it takes a lot. I don't think people realize that like, just because I shared my story once, it doesn't mean that it's not emotional and spiritual labor to rehash and that's why you know before we started talking i kind of be like you know for whatever reason if you don't want to mention something like that's fine i'm not going to go into it because i understand that maybe at one time you talked about something uh but that doesn't mean the second time you're going to want to talk about it just because you talked about it before you know what i mean it's different times and different seasons like it doesn't it doesn't like it it's always sometimes it's always difficult to talk about the things that we've been through yeah definitely as and it's a bit different each time I think yeah yeah the second thing was that we've we've reached the other side of the bridge as you said right like it's that yeah. oh we've been through we've conquered now we're here to help and there's been times when I've given like a speech or something and had to be honest being like right now I'm not good like this isn't the end this is where I this is where I'm at my point but like right now I'm not good. And I think when I first started, I thought that I had to be good to talk about it. Yeah. 
when there's more power when I'm not good sometimes in talking about it. And I think you're right. Like that is a big misconception that like we've came, we've saw, we've conquered, and now we're ready to, you know, help people. And it's not as simple as that. It's not. Yeah. And I, I mean, I always feel like it, kind of like what you said, if, if I'm not good or not doing well, um, then am I being a hypocrite <laughs> to share some of what I'm sharing and like um, some of the ways that I have grown and have changed and have, um, you know, made progress, I guess, um, made it to the other side of a bridge within the whole journey. Um, yeah, like I, I feel there's that small piece of me that's like oh you're being a hypocrite because you're doing trash right now like you don't feel good why are you mm -hmm. saying this um you're not practicing what you're preaching and I mean I think it's harder to share from that place when you're not doing well but it's it is more impactful in a lot of cases and more authentic um and raw and I think a lot of quote advocacy is, is performative. Um, not, not as much from individuals, um, but from, you know, companies slapping, you know, <laughs> something onto their logo, um, for a month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's a very <sighs> rainbows and roses media side of advocacy and awareness and versus acceptance of how raw some of these things really are um and where the roots of some of these things really are so it's much much deeper than i think a lot of people realize yeah it's so interesting you mentioned that because i come from a unique position i don't know if you do as well but i work for a brand mm -hmm. uh, and i come from the advocacy side and i come from the branding side and i I'm fortunate because I, where I'm coming from, we have these discussions very openly and honestly with people who are affected by whether it's, it's pride month, whether it's black history month, whether it's, you know, um, reconciliation, whatever kind of topic you want to talk about, we're able to have like these frank and open, open conversations and thank God we've moved away from just posting a graphic basically being like look at us like yeah here's our look like nothing bothers me more when i see like happy pride with like a logo on it just like a big fat and i'm just like <laughs> yeah yeah because it, it does your sir and it it sort of goes to this idea i have about um kind of instagram activism i don't want to hate on it all because it is informative in a lot of ways when people share infographs but it's the same idea of that, like, you're posting something sometimes more for yourself than for the cause or the issue that you're trying to talk about. And yeah. whether it's mental illness, whether it's social justice, it's something it's hard to talk about, but we need to, we really need to talk about that type of stuff, especially in like a social media age. You know what I mean? I don't know if you feel the same. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think it's something I try and think about every time 
I post something it's social media is great. A lot of the mm-hmm. infographics are great um, because they can connect people and they can connect, um, you know, the connect us to the voices who we need to be listening to for certain things. Um, but it's meant to be a starting point. And I, I think it can be an, an amazing starting point and like launching pad into, okay, what books are you going to go read? Um, or what podcasts and interviews are you going to listen to? And how are you going to make changes in your workplace and in your life? Um, but yeah, that whole like performative activism allyship thing is, uh, it's very complicated because mm-hmm. I think there's a fear of like, okay, if something's happening, something very prominent is being brought to light in the world. Um, there's that feeling of like, Oh, if I don't post an infographic, then like I look bad and I look like I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And when in reality you have to be, I think secure enough in yourself to know like, what are you doing beyond social media? Um, and know that you know your post it might you know connect people that might be a starting point for some people but thinking about for yourself like how much of that is just checking a box for you um or like protecting your own image mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. more like how are we having that internal dialogue with ourselves um even as activists mm-hmm. to like um like thinking through what we're sharing for mental health. Um, what we're talking about right now, like what are we actually doing beyond that is like internal dialogue that we have to have mm-hmm. with ourselves. That's one of the things I love about, you know, shout out to Unsinkable. This is not sponsored by them, but I'm, I'm, I know Tracy and Christine will be happy I mentioned it, but they, you know, the people we work with come from a diverse background of perspectives. You know, I, I think about Asante who, you know, I just admire so much because he's just opened my eyes to so many different things that I never would have thought about before, you know, um, you know, we just work with like tremendous people who are doing so many different things, you know, across their communities and the things that they do, but it's all, they are, we're all kind of brought together in this, this group. And I'm looking forward to like, when we get to meeting again, because I, I love learning from, you know, all of you and, and all the things that you're doing and following you on social media. Cause I just pick up so many tidbits and info and different perspectives. And I think it just makes us as individuals like so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Shout out to unsinkable. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, what are you, what are you working on now? What are the sorts of things that you have coming up? Like, I know you're involved in tons of different initiatives and organizations and you're active on social media a lot with different forms of activism and, and things like what, what sorts of things are important to you right now and that you're working on? Yeah. Um, I'm always writing. <laughs> well, yeah. Always writing. Do you still uh, shoot hoops? Still shooting hoops, mm. trying to at least. <laughs> um, yeah, on the uh, basketball side, um, training actually to play overseas next year, um, which is very exciting and a relatively new development. Um, so hold on, I'm gonna. Pa- I want to get in. So uh, you've mentioned it now, so it's out in the <laughs> open. Like, what are we? 
talking like Team Canada? Are we talking like uh, professional league? Like what what sorts of things? Yeah, um, I mean, Team Canada, fingers crossed, maybe again in the future. Um, but no, for next year, uh, there's a really great program in the UK that allows you to do your master's and uh, compete for that university. Um, so I'm applying to programs like that and then uh, just trying to see where where it goes after that, if I end up playing professionally um, after that, then we'll see. But yeah, just kind of ready to come back to this basketball thing with a, a new mindset about it. And um, I think I'm in a better place to, to try it again compared to where I was a couple years ago at Stanford um, as a freshman and not really sure what was going on. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're older, you know, you have a lot more experience in some of the things you've done. You have a much broader and holistic approach to not only life, but your own physical and mental health. You know, like if I'm waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning and watching you in China, you best believe I'm going to have the Brewer jersey on, uh, you know, going for it. (laughs) Much appreciated. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, okay. So school, uh, yeah. more books. What's like, what's happening here? Like, are we, do you always, how, how many books do you have in your mind that you want to like flush out? Like how many different ideas are you always working on? Or is it just like kind of one and you just kind of focus on that? Yeah. I, I don't know if I have any other books in mind, to be honest. Um, I mean, I, I think I want to write a sequel. Um, to the sifting project, but not 100% sold on that. Mm. Um, right now, um, I kind of just keep a list of little like snippets of ideas um, for fiction, um, but I'm focusing on more like essays and um, mental health related um, writing for a whole bunch of different things, mostly related to athletes. Um, and then kind of more on the, like what my day job is, <laughs> is working, uh, for timeout, which is an, uh, mental health app for athletes. So I'm hmm. very excited about that. Um, and we're in development, hoping to launch in January. Um, and I love it. I get to work on the content kind of writing side and also the research side of things, academic research. So love that I get to work on both of those and like kind of find where their intersection is. And yeah. Yeah. I, I'm one of those people. So I, and I've said this a million times. So for people who listen, I'm so sorry for mentioning it again, but it just always comes up. I was awful at science in school. Like I was terrible, like fifties and sixties in math and science. Like I just, I could never apply it. I just couldn't do the problems to get a good mark, but I find it, so fascinating i love learning about mental health research i love learning about any research really i just i find it so fascinating could never do it but you could tell me about it and i'll be really off like really fascinated about by it what sorts of like research are you looking into um i mean i don't know how much you can give away i, I don't want to spoil the launch in january but like i like for me i love learning about you know, the connection between our gut biome and the brain and mental health. Um, a couple episodes ago, I had Kasha on and we talked about 
you know, the actual science behind intergenerational trauma and how it affects your DNA. And like, I find that stuff so, so fascinating. So what sorts of things that like, are you either working on or that really like spark your interest, maybe even pertaining to athletes um, that you're really like, I'm owning it on this. And this is the stories that I want to tell about it. Yeah. And that's a great question. I can't share a whole lot ah. um, <laughs> about, or at least from the, the timeout side of things, because right. um, we're relatively new and in mm-hmm. development. So um, yeah, can't share a whole lot on that end, but um, some of the other research um, that I've been working on actually be published very soon, hopefully. Um, and it's been on kind of identity, athletic identity and how, mm strongly that is shaped um throughout your athletic career and what kind of the impact that has when you retire and you still have this athletic identity and you're like oh I'm not an athlete anymore um so I've been doing some research with Stanford on that and I cannot share the results of that Uh, I have them I can't share them okay (laughs) well then you're just gonna have to come back on in like a year or two (laughs) and then we're gonna have to go through all the findings because that's that's interesting and I get that a lot with I mean I'm just I always reference hockey because that's my sport but like it applies to every sport right but like what yeah what happens after because you only really have a finite career and hockey's probably one of the longest, maybe basketball too. But if you think of like the NFL or I mean baseball, but I guess the NFL is really the only short one, but like you spend all your life training, um, you know, you get used to the, uh, the grind, the whole, the process as sports athletes would say, and then all of a sudden it's all gone. And then what? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so fascinated by this. (laughs) Can't wait for those. It's a lot. It's a lot for sure. And yeah, I'm very excited for this paper to come out because I think it's, it's going to hopefully start a lot of very important conversations about what Mm -hmm. athletic retirement really looks like um, and how unprepared athletes are for it. um, And kind of that crisis wall that they hit when they retire. So super interesting. Well, I can't wait for that. Um, where you, where can people one find the book and and purchase it and where can people follow you and learn more about, you know, the work that you're, I mean, I looked at your, uh, what is it? The, the all links, uh, link tree. It was just yeah. like all your work is like, Bruh. I'm like, Bruh. but like, where can people find you and, and, and get all the information and all the stuff you're working on? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, book is on Amazon. Um, or it's really on anywhere if you go and look it up, whatever your preference is for buying books. Um, and then probably the best way to see what I'm up to is Instagram. Um, I'm at Nick underscore brew. You're on TikTok yet? I'm not. I'm Gotta like, get you on uh, TikTok. I've been, told, <laughs> I've been told so many times I need to get TikTok, but I'm like, trying so hard to be a millennial I'm like right on the cusp I tried so hard too and then I got it and then it all fell apart for me it was just like my whole life just flashed before my eyes and now I'm trying to be a TikTok star um <laughs> uh, the algorithm is really good what's that I heard the algorithm is like really good 
Listen, we could get in a whole discussion on TikTok, uh, but uh, the FYP knows more about me than I do. I think it really does. Oh goodness! Yeah, That's it knows. I'm not getting it. <laughs> a little too much. I'm like, mm, one, I feel called out, or two, I'm like, do I like this? Do I not like it? I don't even know. Um, <laughs> but go. So for all you listening. Uh, go check out the sifting project, um, Amazon. So that's great. Michaela, this was really great. You're great. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I super appreciate it. Uh, and I look forward to seeing more of your work, following your basketball career and, uh, everything you get up to. Thank you so much. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.